doesn't give. And the question for us this morning is, do we want this peace that the Bible offers to us? Now, our text this morning also lies between two great conversation partners. Uh, The Old Testament prophet Zechariah on the one hand, and the New Testament apostle Paul on the other. This text, which includes such simple action, really is the fulfillment of profound prophecy and and is only explained in light of the, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48, from time to time we want to bring Zechariah in to speak to us. And we want to bring the Apostle Paul in to speak to us. That we might understand this text perhaps as fully as we can this morning. Look with me at Luke chapter 19. Beginning verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes, excuse me, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. We're taking notes this morning. I want us to hang our thoughts on three points. First point is simply this. Peace is a person. Peace is a person. We'll see that in verses 28 to 40. The second thought from the text is peace is elusive. Peace is elusive. Verses 41 to 44. And then finally, peace requires maintenance. Peace requires maintenance. Verses 45 to 48. Let's consider that first point, peace is a person. Verse 28 sets the context for us, doesn't it? Since Luke chapter 8, verse 44, when the Lord began to predict his death, he's been traveling to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 8, verse 51, this is what we read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is to be crucified, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
So the entire gospel from Luke chapter 8 all the way up to Luke chapter 19 has this energy in it. It has this motion in it. Everything is heading toward Jerusalem. And and along the way, we just keep being told he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. Verse 28 tells us he's there. Finally, the Lord arrives. And it's here that Jesus begins to be revealed to us as the king of peace, the source of peace itself. We see it in at least three ways. Number one, we see it in the name of the city. Jerusalem is the city of peace. You know, sometimes cities have nicknames, don't they? So Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. I don't know why. If you've ever seen a Philadelphia sports fan, I don't know where they got that from. Pittsburgh is the steel city. I'm thinking on Pennsylvania cities for you, Matt. <laughs> Pittsburgh is a steel city. Chris and I lived for a dozen years in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's called the city of Oaks. And so cities sometimes take on this character, and that character gets reflected in their name, and Jerusalem was regarded as the city of peace. And that's where Jesus is headed. But it's His kingship of peace is alluded to in a second thing. It's alluded to in that that section there about gathering the cult. It's an interesting section, isn't it? Verses 29 to 35, Jesus instructs two of his disciples to go to the city. And when you get to the gate, which is where the elders would have been, the prominent people of the city, when you get to the gate, there's going to be a cult tied there, a cult that's never been written. And what I want you to do is untie that cult and bring me that cult. And if anybody asks you what you're doing with the cult, tell them the, the Lord has need of it. All right? You know, the Bible's funny. The Bible's funny. Because imagine if someone came to your house and, and saw your car parked out front and started jimmying in the lot to, to sort of hotwire the car, and you come outside, you're like, yo, bruh, that's what you say, right? Yo, bruh, what you doing, man, with the car? You know, what would you say if they said, listen, the Lord has need of your car? <laughs> but there's something tremendous happening here. We don't, we don't know who these people were who owned the donkey, and, and we don't, we're not told their reaction. But it is striking, isn't it, that Jesus' only word to them is tell them that the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, the owners come out and they question them, why are you untying the coat? And the people say, the Lord has need of your coat. And they go, okay. Because they come back with the cult. And they put their cloaks, their coats, over the animal as a kind of saddle. And, and they place the Lord on the cult. And then they begin their trip from the Mount of Olives, just across this kind of valley, across from Jerusalem, from this hill down to the valley, and making their way back up into Jerusalem itself. And it all just seems like a curious bunch of detail until we talk to Zechariah about this text. Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. You're free to look there if you like. Zechariah is, I think, the most quoted Old Testament writer in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. So many allusions and themes and images and prophecies that that the New Testament writers pick up, recognizing that Jesus is fulfilling what, what that prophet had said long ago, centuries ago. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is what we read. And and, and just keep in mind Luke 19 as you read these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. How? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Here Zechariah is centuries before saying, listen, on the day of your visitation, when the Lord comes to you, he's going to come to you riding a donkey, 
a young donkey, a colt, an unridden, an untrained, an unbroken donkey. That's how he's going to come to you, righteous and humble and having salvation. And we come to Luke chapter 19, we're seeing precisely the fulfillment of that. He doesn't come, as would have been a king at a time of war, on a steed. He doesn't come on a a mighty beast of battle. He comes on a beast that symbolizes peace. It's as if he's riding that donkey and he's saying, I come in peace. Here's the king of peace entering the city of peace on a beast of peace. And just as Zechariah prophesied, And he says, rejoice, O daughter, Jerusalem. Shout, Zion. What are the people doing in the text? They lay their cloaks before him as he rides down that mountain. And they rejoice and they shout. They sing their hosannas. They proclaim their hallelujahs. The Savior, the King has come. And Luke, Luke paraphrases it for us too in verses 36 to 40. Now look at, at verse 37. Or excuse me, yeah, verse 37. We read there, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Then this, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They they glimpse and they gather that this this man's coming has something to do with the coming of peace. And and those words there in verse 38, don't they hearken back to Luke earlier in the gospel when Jesus was born? Luke 2 verse 14. Remember what the angels said. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Wherever Jesus goes, he brings peace. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus was leaving glory and coming to heaven in the incarnation and the angels proclaimed to earth that there was peace coming to earth. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to the cross in Jerusalem and will soon be ascended and the men of earth proclaim to heaven there will be peace in heaven. Wherever you find the prince of peace, there you'll find the experience of peace. Peace is a person. And so let me ask that question again I asked in the introduction. Do you know where to find peace? We find it, beloved, with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself has become our peace. We will not have peace with God, peace with men, or even peace within until Jesus Christ becomes our peace. And what is this peace? The Hebrew term shalom, the the Greek New Testament word Irene, from which we get the name Irene. It's a wholeness. It's a wellness. It's a kind of integrity that that puts the soul at rest. Everything is in its place and everything has a place. And no matter what's happening in the rest of the world, there's this stillness, this quiet, this this confidence, this certitude that, that you're going to be all right. And when Christ comes, he comes to give us that, that certitude, that calmness, that stillness, that peace about our relationship with God. That, that sinners though we are and rebels though we've been and, and far from the word of God we have strayed, he has come to bring us back to God that there might be peace with God. And not just peace with God, but, but in his reconciliation on the cross, he's come now to reconcile us with men, with one another. And so the New Testament church becomes this community of peace where people are stilled and quiet and calm because Christ is in the middle and Christ has joined us to himself and Christ in joining us to himself has joined us to each other. Peace is a person. 
And whoever knows Jesus and has seen his mighty works, well, we can't help but praise him. They can't help but celebrate his name. Notice the, the Pharisees in verse 39. They, they look to Jesus and they're a little bit vexed about things. They, they want Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Tell them to stop. Cut this out. They're praising you like you're God, like you're the king. Shut that down, man. They think the crowd has gone too far. They don't, they don't like to see Jesus praised as king. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't like this talk of glory where Jesus is concerned. They, they want this ended. And our Lord's response is famous in every church that's not afraid of emotion. It's famous in every church that's not afraid to praise God. The Lord looks at them and says, man, let me tell you something. That's what it says in the Greek. Let me tell you something. <laughs> If they were to be quiet, huh? the rocks would cry out. The rocks would praise me. If they were to be quiet, listen now, I am not without a witness. If people were to close their mouths, let me tell you what I'd do. I would make the rocks to shout. And I would make the trees, the psalmist say, to clap their hands. And I would make the sky and the stars, Psalm 19, to proclaim my handiwork. I am not without a witness. I will be praised in my creation. And surely the ones whose mouths I've formed and whose souls I've saved, whose minds I've renewed, who have seen me do great and mighty things, surely these will praise me. Surely these will give me the glory due my name. Surely these will exalt me among the nations. Surely these will exalt in me. They will delight in me. And in such delight, they will spring forth in in everlasting praise. The rocks don't have to shout when the redeemed are on the scene. Anybody who who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have but been stilled by his peace, who have seen him show up. <laughs> they praise him. With shouts of acclamation. With songs of joy. With the harp and the cymbal. With the keyboard and the drums. They, they praise him. It's a striking thing that in Christian terms a peaceful people is a praising people. So people engaged with all of themselves in praising the Lord who saved all of themselves. So listen, beloved, don't let anyone stop you from praising Jesus, including religious folks. There are Pharisees in churches today, and they would rebuke you for playing your tambourine or clapping your hands or shouting hallelujah. But Jesus says, come on, bring it, bring it. Don't let folks stop you. Don't be afraid of expressing yourself when you're praising him. We sang it a moment ago. He is worthy. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy to be praised because he's the prince of peace, the king of peace, the bringer of peace. If Christ brings you peace, Be sure you bring him praise. Notice the second point here. Peace is elusive. In verse 41, the Lord finally catches sight of Jerusalem itself. I'm not sure if for some reason he hadn't seen it clearly when he was on the Mount of Olives. The Mount, again, is just across the ravine. It's a peak over here. And Jerusalem is atop of a hill just over here. And you could see in our day, since the incursion of Islam in that part of the world, you can see the Temple Dome or the, 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 the sort of famous mosque there, and, and it's not hard to see. So I don't know if Luke is telling us in some way his view had been obstructed or if, if for sort of emphasis, rhetorical emphasis, he's just now drawing us into what Jesus actually saw when he saw the city. I, I take it to be more of that. And when he sees the city, notice how he reacts. When he draw near and saw the city, he wept over it. The Prince of Peace also weeps. 
And beloved, you can have peace in yourself and weep over your city. Jesus does. And perhaps that's something, there's something wrong with someone who claims to have the peace of Christ but doesn't ever claim to weep with Christ. That might not be peace. That might be indifference and hard-heartedness. Jesus looks on the city and his heart melts. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but God cries. Here's the Son of God, God the Son, with all power and all glory. And he looks upon the city of men. And it's not thunderbolts and lightning and curses and earthquakes and destruction. It's rivulets of tears down the Savior's face. He weeps for cities, for whole cities, whole communities, whole groups of people, for nations. And the reason he weeps is because what he has come to bring has somehow escaped them. It's eluded them. Peace is elusive. And we see it here in the text, it's elusive for at least a couple of reasons. Peace is elusive when you don't know what makes for peace. Look there in verse 42. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's saying, would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The Lord is saying, Jerusalem in tears, I wish you knew what would make you peaceful. I wish you knew what would settle your heart. I wish you knew what would settle your mind. I wish you knew what would repair relationships between you and your neighbor. I wish you knew what would bring you a settled, confident poise before an omnipotent and holy God. But you don't know what makes for peace. And it's true today. Cities are full of people who don't know what things produce shalom, irene, peace. And this is why, beloved, people try all kinds of things to get it. Can we talk? I mean, we're going to leave the service today, many of us, and we're going to go to our homes in the neighborhood, or we're going to drive through the neighborhood to get to our homes. And chances are we're going to see somebody medicating themselves in drug addiction or alcohol addiction, trying to calm the thing that's destroying them. For all of its dysfunction, it's it's longing for peace. And not only that, we're going to maybe talk to somebody this week, see some folks this week, and And to us, we're going to wonder to ourselves, why on earth are they in that relationship and why on earth are they doing this thing that seems so clearly dysfunctional to us in a relationship? And if you listen to them in so many words, they're going to tell us, because I want peace with him. Or I want peace with her. Or I think this will please them and and we'll be happy. That's the bent, distorted echo of a heart longing for peace. The city is full of such cries. And we're going to leave, and we're going to go down the neighborhood, we're going to go on our block, we can maybe sit on the front stoop as I can and and look across the way to another house, and and we're going to see transactions being made. We're going to see people selling and buying drugs, and uh, we might, as I did the other day, see a couple of folks uh, fighting. What's the, what's the lust for power and money about? It's not how we picture it sometimes in cartoons and the movies where someone's throwing up dollar bills and rolling around in the dollar as if the bill is the thing. No. The world teaches us that power and money will afford us peace. 
It'll afford us the ability to quiet our enemies. It'll afford us the ability to escape our predicament. It'll afford us a a peace of mind. It'll afford us a, a quietness. All these peace substitutes. When you see people fighting or flighting, all looking for peace. You'll see people who will ignore it or people who will store it up. Whatever it is, that conflict, that conflagration, that disagreement. Why? Well, they think because if they ignore it, they'll have peace. They think if they hold on to it for a more advantageous time to use it as a weapon, they'll have peace. Now, honestly, beloved, those of you who have tried such things like I have, did it bring you peace? Did it bring you any lasting calm of heart and quiet of mind? Probably not. But Jesus has come to give us this peace. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 19 and look back in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 verse 79. It is striking really that this theme runs throughout this gospel. And in some ways the very mission of Christ is summed up in this one word, peace. So Luke chapter 1, this is Zechariah's prophecy, the um, that old, old, old prophet who saw the day of the Lord. And, and notice in verse 77, he says this. Well, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, referring to John the Baptist, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's how we normally talk about salvation, and that's right. But skip down to verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. When someone comes to guide you to Christ and guide you into the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and righteousness with God, they're guiding you into the path of peace. Remember, we're reading this between Zechariah and Paul. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, again, a lot about our city, a lot about our times, a a lot about people. If you want, you can look there with me in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. And this is what Paul says about the matter. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off as compared to Gentiles? And so you can imagine Paul looking at Jerusalem with something of the same weeping that that Jesus has in his heart. Are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And all that's described in verses 10 down to 16 is really the, the kind of antonym of verse 17. When you don't know the way of peace, you don't seek God, you turn away from God. Our mouths become open graves. We are full of cursing and venom. Our feet are swift to shed blood. There's ruin and misery everywhere we go if we don't know the way of peace. And so in Luke 19, when the Lord comes into Jerusalem and he weeps over that city, he weeps because they haven't known that very way. It's been elusive to them. And there's a second thing here. Peace is elusive when you don't know God is with you. You don't know that God is with you. Look at Luke chapter 19, excuse me, verse 45, 44, or 43 down to 44. That's what the Lord says. He says these things are hidden from your eyes, 
God has called a veil to fall over their eyes. And then he says this, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See that connection there. Jesus prophesies that Jerusalem will be surrounded by her enemies. There will be a siege of the city. The city will be torn down and stones won't be left and and families will be torn apart because they didn't know the day. They didn't recognize the moment of their visitation when God came to them. Peace is a hard thing to find if you don't know that God is present with you. And all that Jesus prophesies in verse 43 comes true. In 70 AD, the Romans occupied Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Surely no stone was left upon one another. What had been known of that great city was obliterated. And Jesus says, would have been different for you if you had known I had come to visit you. You ever thought about how many of our troubles are really connected to the, the lack of awareness of God's presence among us? That's true in Jerusalem. That's, that's true in our day as well. They didn't know that he had visited them. They were ignorant and blind and clueless. They didn't know the time. And they didn't know what makes for peace. Let's have Paul comment one more time on this text. Ephesians chapter 2. I made reference to it before. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. The apostle Paul says there about the Lord Jesus Christ that he himself is our peace. But he goes on to tell us what Christ has done to make peace for us. He goes on to tell us what the way of peace is. So look there at Luke 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Well, how is that true? Who has made us both one. That's peace with men. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, Christ has come and fulfilled God's law, and he did it in part, in full, by sacrificing himself, by giving his body on the tree, on the cross. It's in his act of self-giving on the cross that Christ is actually making peace. Peace between us, and notice, peace with God. He makes in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What's Paul telling us? Peace with God, peace with man, peace within is accomplished by Jesus Christ fulfilling the law of God for us and dying on the cross in our place. And we receive that peace whether we are far off from Israel or whether we are near from Israel to Israel, whether we are Jews or whether we're not Jews, we receive that peace the very same way by the preaching of this message. By the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, and by the calling of people to repent of their sin and to believe on this Jesus, therein is peace, beloved. Therein is peace with God and peace with men and peace with ourselves, for we cease from our work. We stop trying to earn God's approval. We stop trying to live to please men. We live now finally to please God, who is pleased with us, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we worry no more with God. 
because Christ is our righteousness. We worry no more about God's judgment because Christ has been judged for us. He was punished in our place. All of the anger of God toward the sin of men is satisfied in the Son of God as he dies in the place of men. And so there's peace with God, a quiet mind, and a confident assurance that in believing and following Christ, we are reconciled to our Father, and we are reconciled with others who are so believing in Christ and following Him. Don't let little church squabbles fool you, beloved. Oh, we may have our periods of disagreement. We may think differently on some things, but that should never rob us of peace as the people of God. For our peace is in Christ who has reconciled us to himself and reconciled us to each other and reconciled us to the Father and nothing, beloved, in this world can destroy that peace. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you are seeking peace, honestly, you're seeking something you were made for. That is a good thing to look for. It's a good thing to pursue. But it's the kind of thing, like so many good things, that you could go after in completely the wrong way. There are no substitutes for the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. And beloved, today is the day of your visitation. You, you weren't in Jerusalem that day that Jesus rode his colt his into, the, into the city. You weren't there when they untied the donkey. You weren't there to hear the crowds yelling their hosannas and and praising him. And the good news is you didn't have to be. For here, even now, is the Spirit of God. And here, even now, is the same Jesus Christ preached. And and by the preaching of God's word, according to Ephesians chapter 2, God comes near to you. God visits you, even now, even in this moment. And God calls you to come. Get the peace you're looking for by repenting of your sins and trusting in the Son of God who died for you, who redeemed you, who cleanses you by his blood, and who will settle your conscience about any guilt because he has taken it away. You want peace? Come to Jesus. Confess your sins. Trust in him as your God and your Lord and follow him. And peace, his very great peace, will be your reward. Peace is elusive to those who don't know that God has visited them in the gospel. Peace is elusive to those who don't know the way to peace. But you do. It shouldn't be elusive to you and me. For God has told us that peace is in his son. And the way to it is following him in faith. Which brings us to our final point. This peace requires maintenance. It requires maintenance. Not only is peace elusive in the first place, but we must maintain it when we have it. It's no different than maintaining other things that we have. Uh, You have to maintain your grass if you have a house and a little patch of grass. You got to cut it, keep it looking nice, or the neighbors start giving you hard looks. You got to maintain your car. You were happy when you bought it. You weren't thinking about the maintenance costs, but if you want to keep enjoying it, you got to maintain it. You got to get oil changes on time and things of that sort. We have to maintain our relationships, don't we? You know, I know that when Christy married me, she looked at me and it was all I could do to keep her standing. She was swooning, looking at me and, you know, and and her eyes were just filled with love. And and I I know, I know in that moment, she just thought, this is just going to be like this the rest of my life. I can't believe this is happening. I also know that by the the time the honeymoon was over, we were having to do some maintenance work. (laughs) Good things require maintenance, and peace is no different. And there are two things in this text that we see being done to maintain the peace that Christ brings. Number one, we maintain peace by speaking to God, by regularly speaking to God. Pastor T, where do you get that from? I get that from verse um, 45 and 46. See there, Jesus goes into the temple. He's inside Jerusalem now. Now he's going to the place where people are meant to meet with God, the temple, which symbolizes God's presence among the people. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those whose souls, saying to them, it is written, 
My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Oh my goodness. Religion has always been big business, beloved. There has always been people who look to make money off of God. These are not true worshipers. They are not true prophets. They are not true teachers. These are the false teachers who seem to be there in every age. Their God is mammon. Their God is money. And these money changers in the temple, they, they, they seized upon what they thought was a convenience for God's people. They say, listen, you have to come to the temple to make your offerings, to make your sacrifices to God. But listen, if you live way out in Bethany or if you live way out in Bethlehem, you don't want to walk your cow all the way to Jerusalem. Tell you what you do. You just travel with your family, load them up in the cart, travel light. When you get to Jerusalem, come to the temple. We will sell you bulls and goats and rams. We will sell you chickens and doves or whatever else that needs to be sacrificed. And, and, and you know, for a fair price, of course. For a small profit, of course. But it's reasonable. Look at how much convenience we create for you. And not long after, the entire place, as Jesus described it, is turned into a, a den of robbers. It's a, it's a cave for thieves. It's a, it's a living room for scoundrels. This is the place where God's people were meant to pray to God and talk with him, but it's been turned into a marketplace. And so we're not surprised when the gospel writers tell us in other places that Jesus went into that temple. I imagine it this way. He saw the chaos. He saw what was happening. He saw the cheating. And he went over to the side for a moment and he started braiding. And you couldn't tell at first what he was braiding, but pretty soon it was getting longer. And as he watched, he braided. And he went from the people rejoicing as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem and he went from weeping as he looked on the city itself and when he got into the temple braiding this whip, I think he was righteously indignant. I think he was angry. And he made that whip and he turned over tables and he drove out the money changers. You see, sometimes, beloved, peace does require a strong and even in this case, violent action. He cast out everything that was hindering people from actually communing with God, from speaking with God. For his, his temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And now, beloved, his temple is not someplace over in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that we are his temple in whom he lives by his spirit. And without sort of spiritualizing the text or, or being too analogous in the interpretation, isn't it practically right that we should ask ourselves if there's anything in us that hinders us from praying to God, from talking with God, from seeking God in prayer? And isn't it right that we should ask ourselves if our lack of peace might somehow be connected to our lack of prayer? I know there are ways in which people say this, and, and it's, it's really indicative. It really indicates a, a bad understanding of prayer. But there are ways in which people say it, and it's really true and right. You ever heard anybody say this? I prayed about it, and the Lord gave me peace. Now, sometimes people say that, and they're trying to justify something that God said in his word that they should not do, right? That, that peace didn't come from the Lord, right? But there are times when we pray that, if we've had seasons of prayer and the Lord gives us this deep calm, this stillness, this certainty that we take to be his answer. We are meant to be a praising people and we're meant to be a praying people. And by them both comes peace with our God. And so we must maintain peace by speaking to God. But number two, we have to maintain peace by listening to God. That's what we see in verses 47 and 48. The Lord has driven all the people out of the temple. He has uh, run out the money changers. He's, he's cleansed, as it were, his house. And now look at 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. Why? For all the people were hanging on his word. He runs the people out of the temple and he doesn't run out of town. He sets up office in the temple. It's his temple. 
<laughs> he is the Lord. He is the one who was meant to be worshipped in that place. And the text says daily he was in there teaching. Now notice this. Jesus loves teaching. He loves to teach his people. It is one of the highest acts of love that the Savior would teach his people. And notice, he's in the last days of his life, and you, I think, there are other things to do. We have bucket lists, right? Things we want to do before we die. We got to go to Costa Rica. You know, we want to bungee jump. I don't know why that's on anybody's list, but we, we got our little list, right, of things we want to do. You know what's on Jesus' bucket list? Teach the disciples every day. Instruct them in the way of peace. Make sure they know how to follow me. Make sure they know what these things mean because these things are the most important things in the universe. And notice in the text, there are people swirling around the temple and swirling around Jesus and swirling around the disciples looking for ways to destroy him. And Jesus says something like this, open your Bibles to Isaiah. <laughs> Look with me at the scroll of Zechariah. And he teaches them and instructs them and informs them. And notice their reaction. They hang on every word. That's the, that's the posture of God's people. Just leaning in, waiting for every word, leaning so much that if if a word comes too slow, you might fall over. Hanging on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They are experiencing what the Lord says earlier in the Gospels, that we don't live by bread alone, right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here is their God, their Savior, their King, the King of Peace himself, in their presence teaching them. And God's people are just soaking it up and delighting in it. And here's what I want you to understand. As they listen to God, they have the peace of God. For they are right there with Jesus. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, and the text says the principal men of the city, the, the sort of big wheels of the city, they are just as guilty for hanging out with Jesus. But they're not concerned. They're not overly distracted. They're not looking over their shoulder fearing, okay, Lord, hurry up and uh, get this down to three points in a poem so we can go. They are there as if nothing else in the world matters except what the Lord is saying. And as they give attention to the teaching of Jesus, they are kept in the peace of God. Here's how one writer put it. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on him. And talking to God and listening to God, we keep our minds stayed on God and God keeps us in his peace. That's the maintenance work we do. To keep this calm, this quiet, this assurance that only God can give. We talk to God, and we listen to God. So how are we doing at this? How are we doing at prayer? How are we doing at reading God's word, listening to God's word? Are we hanging on his word? Are we finding there our peace? Or are we more focused on the chaos around us? The threats to us, the disturbances that come from outside. I hope it's the case, I pray it's the case, that we would more and more experience God's peace as we listen to him and speak to him. And this has very, very good application for us too here as God's people on mission in this community. Uh, perhaps there are some of you who are thinking about moving into the neighborhood to join us on this mission. Uh, some have already moved into the neighborhood to join us in this mission. Uh, many of you were already longtime residents, long before this church was ever thought of, living in the neighborhood and seeking to be faithful to God. But it might be that as you think about that, there is some fear that comes to mind, that comes to heart. Perhaps the news reports of the latest shooting unsettles you. 
perhaps the conversation with a brother or sister in the church who is relaying some incident. It robs you of some peace. If that's you, let me, let me encourage you, give you permission to do something. Turn off the news and turn to prayer. Hang on God's word. Not the words of the anchor man, not the words of the well-meaning brother or sister. If it robs peace from you that Christ gives, go back to Christ and get the peace that's yours. You know, at the end of the day, we don't need to be people who are skilled in knowing everything that happens in news reports about our neighborhood. We need to be people who are skilled in knowing everything that happened with Jesus to save us and bring us peace. And let's train our minds on that. So as we conclude, three exhortations. Praise God for his peace. Seek God for his peace. Listen to God for his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe that as we praise, seek, and listen, you will grant us the peace that we so desperately need. We do pray that you would help us to take this peace, O Lord, to our family members, to our neighbors and friends, and take this peace around the globe to nations that do not have it. And help us, O Lord, even as we seek to live wisely in the world and to contribute to society, help us to trust you above all things as the source for our contentment and our joy and our stillness before you. Grant, O Lord, that all of our peace would be rooted in your work. And grant, O oh Lord, that as we encounter people who, who were made to know your peace and who are in various ways seeking it and looking for it, help us to encourage them in that, that they should be seeking peace, and help us to be faithful to tell them of the best and lasting way. It's not in work, it's not in money, it's not in relationships, it's, it's not in power, or it's not in the escape of drugs and alcohol or parties or what have you. Well, help us to be confident and joyful to tell them that the lasting peace that the world can't take away is found in the Prince of Peace, your Son, Jesus Christ. And let your peace, O oh Lord, reign in our community. Let your peace reign among, among the nations until we enjoy that final peace in your presence. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,